I'd like to read three passages of the Word of God <coughs> relative to the Sabbath commandment as we, pardon, relative to the commandment to honor father and mother as we begin our treatment of the fifth commandment tonight. First of all, I'd like to call your attention to the words in the Decalogue in Exodus chapter 20, beginning at um, verse 12. Honor thy father and thy mother, that thy days may be long upon the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. Second, I'd like for us to see how the Apostle Paul uh, applies that when writing to the non-Palestinian church at Ephesus in his epistle to the Ephesians at chapter 6 and beginning at verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor thy father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with thee, and that thou mayest live long on the earth. And ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. Before reading the third passage, I'd like to say a few words about uh, the second passage which we just read now. I think it's significant that the Apostle Paul, uh, in Ephesians chapter 6, directs the attention of Gentile congregations to the extreme relevance of the fifth commandment as found in the Decalogue uh, as given on Mount Sinai to God's ancient covenant people, the nation of Israel. Because there are those who would say that the promise annexed to the uh, fifth commandment, honor thy father and thy mother, uh, that it may go well with thee in the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee, no longer applies inasmuch as God's covenant people are no longer resident in uh, Palestine, in Israel. To this we must reply, first, that when the fifth commandment was first revealed to God's people in the desert, they were not at that time in Palestine. In other words, the promise annexed to the people of God was of such a nature that it was not applicable at the very time of its revelation to the Zitz in Leben, or the cultural milieu, uh, of the people where they were at the time of receiving that fifth commandment. This is very important points hermeneutically, because today we are facing in church after church attempts to scale down the cutting edge of the Word of God by saying that many portions of the Bible are culturally conditioned, and that what was true for that cultural condition then not necessarily carries over to our cultural uh, situation today. Um, and we wrestle with these kinds of problems. But as Dr. Hermann Barfick 
said many years ago, I think it was in his Chrekomir Dogmatik, but it may have been in one of his other works, uh, that um, the fact is that it's not true that only some or many portions of the Bible are culturally conditioned. The whole of the Bible, from Genesis 1 to Revelation, is culturally conditioned in the sense that it is revealed originally in a cultural context, but that does not mean and cannot mean that therefore what was revealed in that cultural context then has no application in our cultural context, context today. To the contrary, the fact that it was originally revealed in a cultural context such as the Sinaitic Desert or the land of Palestine or the congregation of Ephesus or whatever then shows its, per its relevance uh, for its concrete application in that cultural setting at that time and therefore its validity for all of God's people of all nations, of all people, of all time, in all parts of the world regardless as to the time when they are living between the creation of the first Adam in the Garden of Eden and the coming again of the second Adam on the clouds at the end of, of history. And indeed when you look at the Apostle Paul's treatment of this same fifth commandment, you will see that that is so. He says distinctly in Ephesians chapter 6, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor thy father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, so that it may be well with thee, and thou mayest live long on the earth. Now, there's a slight difference between what God says in Exodus 20 under the fifth commandment and what God says a little later through Paul in terms of the same commandment in writing to the Ephesians. And one of the differences, you will see, is the place where the prosperity may be expected to be enjoyed in obedience to this commandment of God. Exodus says, in the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee, and the meaning of course was, shall give thee, because the land of Palestine had not yet been given to God's people at that prior time when the fifth commandment was being given to them in the Sinaitic desert. And so, uh, the fifth commandment uh, makes the promise future in the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee, meaning the land of Palestine, and not just heaven in the afterlife, uh, but uh, a promise of a reward in this life, here and now, but not quite immediately, but a little later on, and indeed in a different geographical part of the world, Palestine, than that part of the world that God's people were passing through temporarily as sojourners at the time when the fifth commandment was given them. In the case of uh, Paul's message to the Gentile converts at Ephesus, however, he tells them that if they keep this fifth commandment, it will be well with them, and they will live long on the earth, on the earth. That is to say, uh, in the land, the Gair, where they were resident, namely in uh, Ephesus, in what would now be uh, the uh, central portion of the extreme western coast of what is now Turkey and that these Ephesian Christians if this fifth commandment there would not need to have to go to Palestine 
uh, before they would receive the reward, but they could expect to receive the reward in the place where they were resident at that time. And then you'll notice, too, that Paul adds um, a promise that uh, Exodus does not disclose, but which the Deuteronomy version of this fifth commandment does disclose. He says, that it may be well with thee, that it may be well with thee, and that thou mayest live long. And that it may be well with thee parallels the Deuteronomic statement uh, that the Lord shall prosper thee in the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. In other words, there are two promises really uh, annexed, well, perhaps three we should say, annexed uh, to this uh, commandment, which are received if the recipient is obedient. Uh, there is a promise of a long life. One will live many years. Second, it is a down-to-earth, or as the Germans would say, a Dieszeitiger promise. It's not something we should expect only to start being fulfilled uh, hereafter. It's not a pie in the sky by and by. It's that too. But it's also a pie here on earth, here and now as well, and after life in the life to come. Uh, in the land, this land, which land? The land where you are living here and now, or in the case of the peregrinating Israelites, in the land towards which you are going through the desert as emigrants. And then you'll notice that um, Deuteronomy says that the obedient person will prosper, and Ephesians says it will be well with him. In other words, temporal prosperity, uh, economic prosperity, as well as a long life, will be included in the rewards that God will give to those who keep the fifth commandment. So, as the American Calvinist once said, perhaps a little syncretistically, but I think very truthfully, invest in God, friend, it really pays. And it certainly does. We shouldn't invest in God uh, simply because we want it to pay us to invest in Him. We should invest in God even if it leads in us being destroyed. We should say with Job, Though God slay me utterly, yet will I trust in him. But I would have to agree that the word of God does indeed teach that by and large it does pay to invest in God and that we should expect God to give us a long life and prosperity in this life here and now if we do indeed love Jesus and keep his commandments. The second thing that I think is interesting about Paul's infallibly inspired comment in Ephesians chapter 6 on the fifth commandment is this, that whereas in the Decalogue itself, both in the Exodus form and the Deuteronomy form, it only uh, explicitly mentions the duties of inferiors towards their superiors, inferior children, honor superior father and mother and expect God to reward you in Paul's inspired elaboration of this commandment in Ephesians chapter 6 he makes it clear that implicit in this commandment is also contained the duty of the superior 
toward the inferior, the duty of the father and mother towards the inferior minor child. He says, children, that is inferiors, obey your parents, your superiors in the Lord, for this is right. Honor thy father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with thee, and that thou mayest live long on the earth. And ye fathers, superiors, provoke not your children to wrath, negatively do not do this, but positively ring them up, raise them, feed them, educate them in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. The nurture of the Lord, the warning looking after them, training them, idea, uh, and also in the admonition of the Lord, uh, the uh, nuthesia, so that this involves the total duty of the parent towards the child, to feed the child, to clothe the child, to educate the child, and to raise the child in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Just one little aside that I find very interesting, and for the benefit of those of you who may be here who uh, are not yet committed to the true system of biblical doctrine, that is covenant theology, uh, please notice that it says in Ephesians chapter 6 and uh, verse 4 that fathers are to bring their children up in the nurture and, and the admonition of the Lord, it does not say that fathers are to bring their children into the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. Now you say, well, what's the difference? Well, it's a very important and a fundamental point. What God is saying here is that covenant parents beget covenant children, that covenant children are born in the covenant of grace and are to be raised from conception and fetushood and babyhood in the covenant of grace in which they are born covenant children are not children of Satan at their birth to be regarded as children of the devil on the way to hell who need to be converted and brought into the covenant of grace before they can be regarded as uh, children of God to the contrary their status is that of being holy children from holy parents, holy branches, from holy roots who are born in the covenant. Of course, when they grow up, God forbid, they may, uh, we should hope, very unlikely, but it is a possibility, break with their parental Christian training and repudiate all that they have been taught, in which case we would have to say, that when they reach um, an age of discretion that they themselves break the covenant and that they take themselves out of the covenant. But in order to be able to do that they've got to be in the covenant before they can take themselves out of the covenant and the point in time in which they are brought into the covenant I am thoroughly convinced is the point of conception nine months before they're born. And that's why it is really nonsensical uh, if one is uh, a consistently biblical Christian to speak of bringing a covenant child into the covenant there is no such thing the child is conceived and born in the covenant and what we need to do 
is recognize that fact by infant baptism, of course, and then raise that child in the covenant and warn the child of the dire consequences if the child ever should depart from the ways of the covenant, thereby incurring the covenantal curse. Now, there's another very interesting thing that you might or might not have picked up about Paul's discussion of this fifth commandment, honor thy father and thy mother, here in Ephesians 6. And that is that he says that children must obey their parents and that parents must look after their children immediately after Paul has been saying, wives, obey your husbands and husbands, love your wives like Christ loved his bride and gave himself unto death for the sake of his bride. And two, uh, this statement in uh, Ephesians, children obey your parents, parents raise your children in the uh, nurture and admonition of the Lord, immediately precedes the further statement which follows it, saying, employees obey your employers, employers quit threatening and cursing your employees, but treat them right. And this is a very important point, because you see, what it means in context is that Paul is saying that this fifth commandment, honor thy father and thy mother, is not just concerned, is not just concerned with the obedience which children owe their immediate parents, nor even with the duties that parents owe their immediate children, but it's also concerned uh, with the subordination and obedience that wives owe their husbands, the duty of support that husbands owe their wives, the duty of subordination that an employee owes his employer, the duty of fairness uh, and of living under the law of God. For you two employers know that you have a master, a despot in heaven unto whom you must be subject to his holy law, which regulates that, uh, that situation too. In fact, uh, we can perhaps say, and we should indeed say, that this commandment, honor thy father and thy mother, really does relate to the relationship between all superiors and all inferiors in whatever situation they are found. Now, Let's make it clear at this point that when we say that wives are inferior to their husbands within marriage, we are talking about the functional subordination of the wife to the husband's leadership. We are not meaning that uh, men, or, or even husbands for that matter, uh, are essentially superior to their wives or more important in the sight of Almighty God than are their husbands. And so too, when we say that children are functionally inferior to their own parents, we do not mean for one moment that those children are less important in the sight of Almighty God than are their parents, or vice versa. And the terrible error being made by the women's lib crowd and the Benjamin Spock crowd that want to emancipate ch uh, children and let them do their own thing today is assuming that functional subordination which every single one of us is subjected to in some or other situation in any way implies an ontical subordination uh, or a denigration of the value of every human being in the sight of Almighty God which of course it doesn't.
I am not the principal of the theological seminary where I currently serve God. I am an inferior in that chain of command in that I owe subjection to my principal. Uh, this does not make me feel ontically inferior because it is merely a functional subordination which I must follow. And I may say that though I do try to be the head of my house uh, and be the superior in my overall relationship to my wife, there are areas of her homely expertise such as the kitchen where very frankly I recognize my inferiority and indeed do subordinate my, uh, my own leadership in that particular section of our marriage to her undoubted culinary superiority over myself. And so too my own children who are now 14 and 11 sometimes manage to correct their father in his exposition of the word of God at family worship each day and I gladly accept such correction because the truth is the truth and we must learn to welcome the truth wherever we see it and from whomsoever we receive it but there would be absolute chaos society if there was no functional subordination of one person to another and indeed you will find that he or she who is a functionally uh, subordinated inferior in one sphere of life is indeed always a functionally um, superordinated superior in another area of life and indeed sometimes even over the very person to whom he or she is subordinate in another area. For example, if uh, the elder of a church uh, is a wealthy industrialist but if the man sitting in the pew of the church is not a wealthy industrialist but a policeman in ecclesiastical matters the policeman is the inferior functionally of the elder in the church who is the industrialist however if the industrialist is caught one night uh, doing something that he shouldn't do by that policeman uh, when the policeman is on the beat in that situation the policeman becomes the functional superior and the other way around it is entirely possible that the person in the pew is the industrialist uh, helping to pay the salary uh, of uh, the preacher and other church um, um, expenditures uh, but that someone in the session uh, is an employee, a factory worker of the very industrialist sitting in the pew. And don't you see that that would mean that when the employee is functioning as the elder in ecclesiastical matters, he is then the functional superior of his own employer who is perceived to be in the pew and the subject of church discipline. And if the industrialist is big enough, and we hope that he is, he will not try to take it out of uh, his employee at work the next day uh, for doing his duty uh, on the session. And so then I say again, every one of us who is superior functionally in one area of our life is inevitably inferior in another area of our life. And this should really not uh, upset us in any way whatsoever. Well now, at this point, we are uh, almost in a position to pass to the third 
text that I'd like to bring to your attention, but before I do, I would like to point out that, in general, some six or seven different spheres are usually pointed to as being appropriate spheres in which we should expect to find these functional relationships of subordination. First of all, of course, and very obviously, there is the parental sphere. Honor thy father and thy mother uh, illustrates the duties between parents and their immediate children. Secondly, as Paul has shown us in Ephesians 6, it also regulates the subordination required in the marital sphere between husband and wife. Third, as Paul further points out here, it illustrates the subordination in the employmental sphere, the relationship between employer and employee. Uh, again, by implication, it would uh, uh, imply the subordination in the political sphere between statesman or ruler on the one hand and citizen on the other hand. Um, further, in the ecclesiastical sphere, it would imply the duty of subordination which the pew owes to the session, and conversely, the duty of love and care which the session owes to the pew. And then in the social sphere, of course, it would also uh, indicate the subordination which members of, say, a stamp collecting club uh, really do owe to the committee of the stamp collecting club when the committee takes a decision. And without an understanding of the application of this fifth commandment requiring functional subordination in a bond of love, honor thy father and thy mother, throughout the entirety of human society, uh, we have a revolutionary situation and a total breakdown of law and order. And of course, this is by and large the situation which we are getting into today in human society, sociologically speaking, in this day and age in which we live. The insubordination of younger people to older people, of children to parents, of wives to husbands, of citizens to their government, of uh, employees to employers, and so on throughout. And what we must call for is a re-emphasis of the importance of this fifth commandment as an absolute necessity for the continuation of a civilization indeed across the board. One final point, and this brings me one final point on these uh, preliminary scriptures that we're dealing with, and that brings me to the third text, and that is the extreme breadth of this commandment. And to illustrate this, shall we turn in God's holy word to Matthew chapter 15. Matthew chapter 15, and read a few verses together. Matthew 15, verse 1. Then came to Jesus scribes and Pharisees, which were of Jerusalem, saying, Why do thy disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they wash not their hands when they eat bread. But Jesus answered and said unto him, Why do ye also transgress the commandment of God by your tradition? For God commanded, saying, Honor thy father and mother, and 
he that curseth father or mother, let him die the death. But ye say, Whosoever shall say to his father or mother, It's a gift by whatsoever thou mightest be profited by me, but honor not his father or his mother, he shall be free. Thus have ye made the commandment of God of none effect by your tradition. Ye hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, This people draweth nigh unto me with their mouth, and honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from they. Do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men? Now, that's a mouthful, and I'm not going to take the next five or six hours expounding it all which it really deserves so I'll just make a few observations about it um, Jesus is here explaining some of the ramifications of this fifth commandment honor thy father and thy mother and in a great deal of explanation with tremendous implications for every one of us here you see that Jesus explains to some extent uh, what God also requires in the honor which children are to pay their parents. Jesus says, God says, honor father and mother. And then from what follows, Jesus makes it clear that to honor father and mother also means to give sums of money. Not to the church, but to one's own aged parents when they are old if they then do not have enough to take care of themselves and indeed if we have a knowledge of the of the Greek here we can see this idea of monetary support of one's aged and uh, indigent uh, superiors parents in this case being clearly taught by the very Greek word here translated honor because it's the same word Timau, as is used in 1 Timothy chapter 5 where congregations are told to honor uh, such of their elders that rule well with double honor yes particularly those of the elders who labor in word and in doctrine for you may not um, put a muzzle uh, on the uh, ox while he is treading corn and you see that giving of double honor to such elders as rule well and particularly to those of them that to labor full time in word and doctrine the preaching elder that is the minister of the word and sacraments is to receive double honor and that double honor means an honorarium and that means very frankly that if congregations are not paying their preachers the congregations are thieves or if they're underpaying their preacher they are thieves and they are stealing from the man of God to whom honor that is an honorarium should be paid and so again this is the same word which Jesus is saying in uh, his exposition of Matthew 15 
the same word honor or honorarium which Jesus is implying should be paid by children to their immediate parents when their parents are old. So then, when God says to children, honor thy father and thy mother, he doesn't just mean that we are to raise our hats and to stand up for our parents and to call them mom and dad or sir and ma'am depending what part of the world you live in but it very definitely means says Jesus that we are to take care of our parents when they are old monetarily support them financially if they need that support and that if we do not do that and if we trust a socialistic state to do that which rips off somebody else from some of the money that they should be using to support their parents and forces them with a misused and perverted power of the socialistic sword of the socialistic state to support my parents because I am too rotten to support my own parents financially which the word of God requires well then we have a situation that is breaking centrally this fifth commandment. I love to tell fundamentalists whom I think often approach the point of Phariseeism in their understanding of tithing that the Lord Jesus is squarely against them because there are some attitudes in some portions of the church of Jesus Christ that go to this effect. Well now that the state will take care of your folks when they're old you don't need to take care of them at all so tell you what, you can go far beyond your tithe to pay to the church. Give the church 20% or 30% to support some missionary in Bongo Bongo land or whatever. And never mind your mom and dad, that doesn't matter. Jesus said in this situation, you hypocrites, the church is not to steal from the Christian money that that Christian should be using to support his own indigent parents with. Today we hear of this idea of souls going to a Christless eternity. I would love to hear these churches speak of the duty which children owe their parents in their old age to honor them, to give their parents an honorarium if their parents need that support, instead of saying, oh well, the Department of Social Welfare will take care of it anyway, which they do inadequately, and not in the name of King Jesus usually who is dishonored by this twisting of God's creation ordinance out of kilter this wrenching of the duty of the inferior child even if he's 60 to support the superior parent even if he's 80 and to shuffle up this commandment of almighty God onto the atheistic state Jesus says if I understand Matthew 15 aright this is a breach of this commandment. It is a breach of this commandment. And so you see, when we approach this commandment, honor thy father and thy mother, we begin to understand that the implications of this commandment, as indeed of every commandment, is very broad. It refers to the full spectrum of social relationships, not just within the immediate family, but indeed throughout all society. 
And the word honor here is not some neoplatonic pie in the sky by and by, a disembodied, purely spiritual, non-material raising of the hat, and that's all there is to it. No, it involves the supply of concrete, useful, Christos, down-to-earth money with honorarium with which the necessary food and shelter and clothing can be provided for the person that needs them. Or to put it a little differently, if mother and father fed me and clothed me and looked after me and educated me for the first 20 years of my life, what kind of a monster am I if they need that support back from me in the last 20 years of their life and I turn away from them as if they're so much dirt and force you to shell out your hard-earned money in a somewhat eloquent way that I've made the point. Now, that's not the message. That's the introduction. We now go to the message, which will be relatively simple. Uh, in the text of the larger catechism beginning at question 124 what are meant by father and mother in the fifth commandment answer as I've already alleged by father and mother in the fifth commandment are meant not only natural parents but all superiors in age and gifts. Age and gifts. Well, that means, very frankly, <laughs> uh, that if I, who am now nearly 47, meet a man as I did today, that I should respect and do, G.I. Williamson, who's 48 and a little more, I should honor him <laughs> because he is my superior in age. And if that humble man, rightly or wrongly, seems to imagine, as he did, that in certain areas I am superior to him in gifts, then he honors me in the realm of gifts, even though he's my superior in age. I'm not saying that his assessment is correct. I'm saying that is the assessment which this humble man gave this afternoon in some areas. And so, you see, to reinforce the point I made a little, area, a little earlier, every one of us that is inferior in one area is superior in another. We're either superior in age, and usually in wisdom, <laughs> uh, or we are superior in gifts, we hope, uh, and in training, but not in years. And that's why all people must at all times treat one another with courtesy and with kindness and with compassion and with respect. My father and mother in the fifth commandment are meant not only natural parents, but all superiors in age and gifts, and especially such superiors as by God's ordinance are over us in places of authority, whether in family, our parents, in church, our elders, or in commonwealth, our governors. And as I said before, also in the committee of the stamp collecting club, uh, in, um, um, at school, the relationship between the principal and the teacher on the one hand and the children on the other, there should not be this progressive 
miseducation in terms of which the child is encouraged to call his or her own school teacher by the first name. That is Deweyistic democracy. It is not Calvinistic or godly theocracy at all. And I hope with me you're a theocrat because Calvin was. And if you don't have the courage to call yourself a theocrat, then I hope you will have the honesty to quit calling yourself a Calvinist. Now, question 125. Why are superiors styled father and mother? And we do this. We speak of George Washington as being father, political father of the American people. Uh, we speak of the uh, delegated ruling and teaching elders in the larger courts of the Church of Christ as being fathers and brethren, and appropriately so. Well, superiors are styled father and mother, both to teach them in all duties towards their inferiors, like natural parents, to express love and tenderness to them, according to their several relations, and to work inferiors to a greater willingness and cheerfulness in performing those duties to their superiors as to their parents. In other words, whether you are a parent, or whether you are a husband, or whether you are an employer, or whether you are the chairman of a stamp connecting club, or whether you are president of the United States or Queen of England, in the exercise of your political, marital, employmental, or parental superiority, you are to do it expressing love and tenderness. Just as a husband is to love his wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself for the church, so too is a true patriot to so love his people rather than lording it over them that he, like Christ, must be prepared to lay down his life for his countrymen as Jesus did for the members of his church. And I've said a million times to girls and women, and I tell my own beloved doctors, never marry a man who will not look you in the eyes after asking you to marry him. And he will not say, by the grace of God, honey, I will lay down my life to protect you. Because a man who won't promise that to a woman is not worth marrying. He's not a real man at all, whatever else he may be. So then, there must be an expression of love and tenderness by the superior in the exercise of his or her legitimate authority to those people um, who are subordinated to them in that sphere-sovereign restricted area. But then, they're also called fathers and mothers, even in the political and the ecclesiastical and other spheres, to remind inferiors that they must with a greater willingness and cheerfulness give that due obedience. Willingness and cheerfulness. Are you willing and cheerful when the government asks you to do something? Are wives willing and cheerful when their husbands say, Honey, I think this is the way it's going to have to be. Or do they rebel? Are children willing and cheerful? when their parents counsel them what to do. Are you or I as an employee willing and cheerful when our employer 
righteously and legitimately within the appropriate sphere over which alone he has jurisdiction over our life when in his employ asks us to do something that we should do do we comply willingly and cheerfully or do we go to union number 285 and say boys let's strike again I'm not going to take any guff from my employer you see the implications of this commandment run throughout society and society is crumbling today in many because man will not submit himself to father and mother in politics, in church, in marriage, or wherever. And do you know why? Do you know why man will not submit himself to those persons whom God has ordained over him? Do you know why, why wives today are rebelling against their husbands? Do you know why citizens are rebelling against their governments today? Because such wives and such citizens who do rebel have first rebelled against their heavenly father. I am absolutely convinced that no child will ever rebel against his father and his mother until that child has first rebelled against our father which art in heaven. I am convinced that no woman will ever try to shuffle off her husband's leadership within marriage until that woman has first ungodly rebelled against the heavenly father who has laid down this order. I am convinced that no political revolution ever takes place until the citizens have first in their ungodliness pushed to one side the duly constituted political authorities that our heavenly father has put over them and through whom the heavenly father rules Oh, ladies, listen to me if you be a rebel against your husband. It's not your husband that you're really rebelling against. It's Almighty God that you're rebelling against who would rule you through your husband. Oh, children, listen. When you rebel against father and against mother, it's not mother you're rebelling against. It is Almighty God that you're rebelling against who has told you that you must serve Him and manifest your subjection to Him by listening to your mother. Do you see it? Do you see it? Is it not clear? Is it not obvious? Our God is not a deistic God up there on cloud nine, oblivious to the down-to-earth, integrated, interlaced relationships which we sustain with one another on this earth. No, our God is imminently present in the warp and woof and the fabric of society, and it is here, here and now that he must be obeyed and subjected to in every possible relationship that we sustain to one another who reflect the image of the God who made us all and who must be honored even in our relationship to one another. Well now, what's the general scope of the fifth commandment? Question 126 of the larger catechism. The general scope of the fifth commandment is the performance of those duties which we mutually owe in our several relations as inferiors, superiors, or equals. That's interesting, or equals. Have you ever thought about the relationship which uh, children within the same family uh, should sustain towards their equals, towards their brothers and sisters? In other words, not only does this commandment, honor thy father and thy mother, tell me what my duty is towards my two girls and what their duty is towards me, but it also, says the catechism, tells my two girls what their duty is toward one another. Of course, it isn't true that all people are absolutely equal. It isn't true that all people are equal, but that some are a little more equal than others. 
It is true that all people are different from one another. As I, Abram Kuyper, said a hundred years ago, informigated fluke van modern leven, which means uh, uniformity, the curse of modern life. And what a ridiculous thing to say that my 11-year-old daughter is the same, equal in every respect, as my 14-year-old daughter. That's absolutely not true. There's an inequality in age. There's an inequality in ripeness. The 14-year-old uh, is doing very well in languages. The 11-year-old is doing very well in art. The 11-year-old is already the superior in art, I think, to the 14-year-old. And the 14-year-old is superior in languages to the 11-year-old. And yet, in spite of these differences and inequalities in many areas of giftedness, they are formally equal as sisters in exactly the same way as my wife and myself are formally equal to one another in spite of the subordination in the relation of husband and wife that I must sustain to my wife and in spite of the relationship of subordination that the younger sister is to sustain to the elder sister. One of the most interesting books I have ever read. One day, if I get time, I must try and translate it into English. I don't think it's been done. It's a book by Abram Kuyper. I can't quite remember offhand what the title is. Maybe some of you can prompt me. But at any rate, it's an analysis of the relationships within the family. The relationship between father and mother, between husbands and children, between elder brother, younger sister, between twin brothers. And so it goes on, and aunt and uncle, and grandfather and grandmother. And he points out this beautiful idea that the family, particularly a large family with a greater variety of different interrelationships between the people, is the training ground in terms of which we learn to relate to people in the broader context uh, in economics, in factory, the relationship between the factory uh, manager and uh, the machine operator, in politics and in church and so forth. Very fine book. I can't even remember the title. Anyway, like the man went to the library and they said, you know, it's an awfully good book. Everybody's talking about it. I must read it. Do you have it? <laughs> and she said, well, what's the title? He says, well, I don't know what the title is, but it's a good book, and I want to read it. And they read that book by Kuiper. <laughs> uh, because that's exactly, he's saying the same thing as the larger catechism here. Duties between equals. Well, now, what is the honor that inferiors owe to their superiors? The honor which inferiors owe to their superiors, which wives owe to their husbands, which children owe to their uh, parents, which citizens owe to their uh, governments, which the pew owes to the session, etc., is all due reverence in heart. Paul says, let the wife see to it that she reverence her husband in word and in behavior. Prayer and thanksgiving for them. When did you and I last pray for our employers? When did we last pray for the government? Do we really revere the government? Or do we do like a candidate for the presidency of the United States, fortunately unsuccessful, once said in my presence some 15 years ago, folks, 
I see they brought out another stamp with uh, Lyndon Johnson, President Lyndon Johnson's face on the stamp. Folks tell me something wrong with the stamp. Thing won't stick to the envelope, but I keep telling them folks are spitting on the wrong side of the stamp. You may not like Lyndon Johnson, and I certainly didn't, but I submit that is no way for a Christian man, and this was a Christian man who told this, should ever speak about the President of the United States, or the Prime Minister of New Zealand, or the leader of the opposition, or whatever. That is not to treat duly constituted authority with dignity and with decency. So then, inferiors are to pray for their superiors. They are to imitate their virtues and their graces, and they are not to imitate their disgraces and their vices. They are to show willing obedience to the lawful commands of their superiors. Now, if the government says, uh, butcher all of the Christians, well, clearly, uh, the non-Christian citizens should not give heed to that. Um, if your husband uh, says to you as a Christian wife, I'm fed up of your mother, I want you to put this arsenic in her tea when she next comes for dinner. Obviously you must obey, disobey, pardon, <laughs> disobey, <laughs> disobey your, your husband. It's more difficult when you get into the area of children. Uh, what does a seven-year-old child do? If his ungodly parents say you're not going to go back to church next Sunday. Kuiper wrestled with this, and they had some furious debates around about 1900 in the Dutch Parliament on this between Kuiper and Trustra. I'm not sure Kuiper always thought it out straight, but that's that's another another matter. It's more difficult, isn't it? What do you do if your government orders you to uh, take up arms against a righteous Calvinistic country just because most countries in the world don't like that country? Hmm? You may be faced with that one day. I may be faced with it. What do you do? Well, generally, you should obey your superior. Only if you're absolutely convinced before Almighty God that the superior giving the command has very obviously and in your mind undeniably ordered you to transgress one or more of the commandments of God, you should obey the superior. But if you're completely convinced that the command is ungodly, like put arsenic into your mother's tea, well then obviously you've got to disobey even if the person holding the gun pulls the trigger and dispatches you into the next life for not having obeyed. I'm not saying that it's always easy <laughs> to know exactly what to do in those situations. Uh, I am saying that the basic principle is clear enough and I believe too we must trust God and our Lord Jesus who said don't worry now about what you will do in those situations at that time the Holy Spirit will explain to you what to do and I trust give you courage to do it even if it should lead to your own incarceration or even death on account of saying as Peter said we must obey God more than man when the political authorities in Jerusalem ordered Peter never again to preach in the name of Jesus Christ but by the way you'll notice the anti-revolutionary and polite way in which Peter resisted that command and from that I think we can all take a definite hint as to the manner in which we must resist evil directives given us by a superior who is asking us to do things that the word of God prohibits. We should duly submit to the corrections of our superiors 
give fidelity to them, defense to them, and maintenance of their persons and their authority, according to their several ranks and the nature of their places, bearing with their infirmities. You know, I tell my children, I said, I, you don't have a perfect dad. I do make mistakes. But remember, bear with my infirmities. Don't obey me only when you see that I am perfect because I won't be perfect in this life. But obey me because God tells you you must obey me. And I'll tell you something else, my children. I won't wait until I see that you're perfect children before I start loving you. I'll love you in spite of your imperfections. Even when I see you warts and all the way you are. And you know, ladies, that means obey your husband, even if he's un imperfect, even if he's an unbeliever. And it means, husbands, keep on loving your wives even when they nag and are absolutely uncooperative and impossible. And that's hard. But there come times, I think, within marriage, with most of us, if not with all of us, times which hopefully only last a few seconds, when we feel so enraged by the insubordination of that inferior that claims to be a Christian, that God has told them to obey us, then we remember God has told us to love them, and not just to love them when they obey us, but even to love them when they're not obeying us. And this is real pragmatic too, because I find that the more upset one's wife gets, uh, the more you freeze towards her in reaction, the more the problem uh, gets complicated. But if one, when one's wife is insubordinate and disobedient, one determines to pray to Almighty God to love her twice as hard even when she's in that condition, I find they come out of the deep freeze real fast and then the problem is restored. And it works that way. And really, this is what Christianity is all about. Not waiting for the other person to make the first move before you do what you should be doing, but for you to go the extra mile first. And you're doing that, the soft answer that turneth away wrath, as the book of Proverbs says. Eminently practical. So too in industry. So too in a school situation. Or wherever. How wonderful and practical and down to earth is the word of our God in this creation that he has created and which he sustains moment by moment by his almighty, infallible, and ongoing word, bearing with their infirmities and covering them in love so that uh, they may be an honor to them and to their government. Well, now, what are the sins of inferiors toward their superiors? The sins of inferiors against their superiors are all neglect of the duties required toward them, envying at, contempt of, and rebellion against their persons and places in their lawful counsels, commands, and corrections, all cursing, mocking, and all such refractory and scandalous carriage as proves a shame and dishonor to them and to their government. There should be no place for rudeness in any human relationship, least of all in rudeness of an inferior towards a superior, but no rudeness either in the relationship of a superior toward an inferior. And what are required of superiors toward their inferiors? It is required of superiors, of husbands, of parents, of governments, 
of sessions according to that power which they receive from God and that relation wherein they stand to love pray for and bless their inferiors how much do I love my wife and pray for my wife and bless them how much do governments love their citizens pray for their citizens bless their citizens to instruct counsel and admonish them do I patiently explain why I think our family's got to do a thing in a certain way to my wife and to my children do I say I'm the head of this house and my word is law and I'm going to do this you people don't have to know why you sit still while I instill no <laughs> catechism says I am to instruct them and to explain to them and this is good because you see they react to the instruction and then if I'm open and not proud well then when they critically ask me to explain further that acts as a corrective on what I think we need to do and so I get input and feedback from them and in that way the final decision which is taken is a far better decision than it would have been if I'd said that's the way it's going to be there's not to reason why there's but to do and die <laughs> no we must take time to instruct to admonish and then we must countenance commend and reward such as do well we are to reward people that do well we are to reward that child in our family that does well we shouldn't have a false democratic idea oh well they're all my children therefore it, we'll give the child that's good exactly the same reward as the child that's bad I disagree with that disagree with that and so to a government is to reward those of its subjects or citizens that do well government is not to be democratic and to give equal treatment to the ungodly citizens that it gives to the godly citizens Paul says in Romans 13 that the calling of the government is to reward those citizens who are good and to punish those citizens that are evil you see how wicked democracy is when we really get down to where the rubber meets the road you see how antithetical it is to the theocratic principles of God's holy word reproving and chastising such inferiors as do ill protecting and providing for them that is not those that do ill of course but uh, for those who uh, subordinate themselves protecting and providing for them all things necessary for soul and body and by grave wise holy and exemplary carriage to procure glory to God honor to themselves and so to preserve that authority which God hath put upon them what are the sins of superiors the sins of governments the sins of husbands the sins of parents the sins of school teachers the sins of sessions what are their sins the sins of superiors are besides the neglect of the duties required of them an inordinate seeking of themselves their own glory ease profit or pleasure commanding things unlawful or not in the power of inferiors to perform governments do this when they overtax the inferior citizen shape one stage after World War two some categories of people in England were paying 105 percent income tax no wonder that they emigrated I would have too <laughs> <laughs>
if I'd been them, wouldn't you? Putting a heavier weight on people than they can burden. Big strong man telling his wife to work like a horse in the in the in the garden and to do a one horsepower job whereas he's only got a one wife power wife. Uh, this is overburdening people. It's morally wrong. To overburden your employee, to make him hold down two jobs and just give him a salary for doing one man's job. It's morally wrong. To expect your little children, because they're your children, <laughs> to exhibit the same dynamism which you have today as an adult, which they poor little things at their tender age of development are not physically capable of doing is to order them to do something which is not yet in the power of inferiors to perform. Furthermore, furthermore, superiors are not to counsel, encourage, or favor inferiors in that which is evil. If we see those under our care doing things that are wrong, we may not wink our eye at it. We may not pretend that we didn't see it. We've got to take action appropriate action against whatever it is that they're doing that's wrong dissuading, discouraging or discountenancing them in that which is good correcting them unduly oh 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 at times I hear my dear wife God bless her, she's a perfectionist, she's a lovely woman I have to go up to her at times and say honey those girls are only 14 and 11 you know well, when I was 14 and 11, I said, yes, but we're not talking about you. We're talking about our children living in 1980 now. Are you not correcting them unduly? I said, you know, there are times when I think you need correction, but then I clam up because I don't want to correct you unduly. And it's awful difficult at times, isn't it, to know when you speak up more than you do and when you should shut up more than you do. You've got to have the patience of Job and the wisdom of an owl to know got to be a man and a woman of prayer so not correcting them unduly or careless exposing of, of inferiors or leaving them to wrong temptation or danger the 14 year old says dad I want to go out tonight and I'll be back at 2 a.m. And you, being a good Democrat, say, well, times have changed. Who am I to inflict my middle-class bourgeois Victorian values on my 40-year-old? And you go along with the crowd and you say, okay. You know what you're doing? You're carelessly exposing or leaving your children to wrong temptation or danger. Or you hear a noise in the middle of the night, 3 a.m., you nudge your wife and you say, I think it's a burglar. You go downstairs and check. What are you doing? You're exposing your wife that the word of God says is the weaker vessel. She may not think that she is, but she is, whether she thinks it or not. She's a braver vessel. <laughs> if she goes downstairs, it's a braver vessel. But what are you doing? You're exposing your dear wife that Jesus says you should defend with your own lifeblood as he gave his life for his bride to needless danger. Oh, we could go on and on and on. All of this is so practical. Provoking them to wrath. Nag, 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 and suddenly, boom. Counter-reaction. Explosion. 
And it's not just women that nag. Male parents, fathers can nag too. Fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but rather encourage them. Don't break their spirit. When you nag a person, you break their spirit. Nagging is counterproductive. All that all parents would realize how destructive nagging is, all that women would realize how they enrage their husbands and almost cause their husbands to hate them and to rebel against their wives by nagging them. Women, if you realize that, you'd never ever nag your husband again. You really wouldn't. Because it's having exactly the opposite effect on him that you hope that your nagging will have on him. And so too with our children. So too with our children. Don't provoke to wrath. Or in any way dishonoring themselves or lessening their authority by an unjust, indiscreet, rigorous or remiss behavior. You see, if I'm the king of Israel, Rehabian, and I say to my advisers, so, the people are moaning and groaning, are they the citizens? That my dad Solomon overtaxed them. Ha, 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 ha. We'll put up the income tax to 70% of their income, and I'll show them. I'll show them. My little finger is thicker than my father's thigh. And then are you surprised? <laughs> when ten of the twelve tribes declare themselves independent. According to the American version, this is why America declared itself independent of Britain, through overtaxation. The Americans thought they had a cause then. Let me tell you, they weren't taxed at all by George III compared to the taxes they're paying Uncle Sam today. But you see, this is what happens. Provoking the inferior to wrath by an unjust or rigorous behavior. What are the duties of equals? What duty does my 11-year-old daughter owe my 14-year-old daughter? What duty do you as a typist at the XYZ company owe to the stenographer next to you at the XYZ company? Uh, what duties do you as assistant manager of sales owe to the assistant manager of distribution at the company for which you work? What duties do you as an elder over area five of the congregation owe to your fellow elder in charge of elder 15 of the congregation? The duties of equals are to regard the dignity and worth of each other in giving honor to go one before another and to rejoice at each other's gifts and advancement as their own. And so you're assistant vice president of sales and there's a board meeting and you hope you're going to get promotion but it doesn't come that year but the assistant vice president of production gets the promotion. How do you react? Are you happy for him? Or do you grin at him wishing that you could gouge his eyes out and say that's wonderful news. I hope you'll be very happy. I love you, and God loves you, and has a wonderful plan for your life. <laughs> or even if you have been incorrectly withheld your advancement, nevertheless, if he's worked hard, and I know it's very difficult if you haven't gotten any advancement that year, but shouldn't you shouldn't you at least pray to Almighty God that you will be enabled to congratulate Him? If you're a spinster and you're 35 and you're on the shelf, 
But your 30-year-old spinster friend announces that she's getting married next week. Do you feel happy for her or do you feel insanely jealous? And so we could go on and on and on. What are the sins of equals? The sins of equals are, besides the neglect of the duties required, the undervaluing of the worth, envying of the gifts, grieving of the advancement or prosperity of one another, and usurping preeminence over one another. You see, it shouldn't really be difficult for each of us who are formally equal to one another to acknowledge that as far as gifts are concerned, others are superior to us. It's not difficult for me to acknowledge that the lady playing the piano in church last Sunday is my musical superior. Of course she is. What an idiot I'd been to suggest the opposite. Hopefully, she and others will receive the grace of God to acknowledge me, at least functionally, as a uh, superior in systematic theology. Although I have pastored some churches in the United States where the most ignorant person, who can hardly write their name, honestly thinks that they know ten times more about theology than a person who studied fifteen years uh, acquiring a number of degrees. I actually had an elder tell me one day, not only that he preached better than I did, but when I pointed out that he was um, um, a bridge engineer and built bridges, and I said, well, now look, friend, as we were going over this bridge towards Presbytery, I said, now, you make bridges. I said, I'm an idiot. I can't make a bridge. He says, you're capable of making a bridge just as good as I can or better. I said, now I've heard the ultimate idiocy. Let's talk about something. But that's what democracy does, you see. Everyone has got to be equally ignorant and equally incompetent. And there's to be no excellence, and no person is to be allowed to excel functionally in one area, which another person is not to excel in another area. The sins of equals are undervaluing the worth and envying the gifts of others. If I can't have that gift that you have, you won't have it. My friend, let me tell you something if you're a Democrat. If you are a midget in some area of your life, you will not grow one inch taller by sawing off the legs of a giant and gluing them onto yourself. You'll bring both you and the giant to grief. And that's why socialism is counterproductive, and socialism, with its egalitarian French revolutionary doctrine, is certain, finally, to destroy civilization and to put economic growth into backward gear. It must do that cannot do otherwise because all advance in civilization has always come by a few very gifted individuals in one area dedicating themselves to those gifts the development of those gifts with incentives hopefully with the laudable aim of promoting a raising of the standard of living of everybody else but even if they haven't thought that there's always been some spin-off benefit to other people that wasn't intended I once heard an idiot, so-called Calvinist, but an idiot, get up in public in the United States and solemnly tell his audience in the name of Calvinism that General Motors had murdered more of its employees by underpaying them than all the people that were then being butchered in Vietnam. Now, if he had said that 90% of what General Motors does for its employees is done for thoroughly selfish reasons, 
and that the board of General Motors doesn't care that much about its employees, but it doesn't want to have too much uh, rotation of employees, to waste profit money in retraining new personnel. If it said that, I could have bought it to some extent. But when an intelligent man, when a leader of what he calls a Christian labor union gets up in public and solemnly pronounces in the name of Calvinism that General Motors has murdered more of its employees than all the people being butchered in Vietnam. I want to phone a lunatic asylum and say one of your inmates has escaped. I really do. But you see, this is the sort of thing that happens when we have an improper understanding of the fifth commandment. Last, what's the reason, the promise that is annexed to the fifth commandment? The reason annexed to the fifth commandment, in these words, that thy days may be long upon the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee, is an express promise, I like that. An express promise. God has spoken it. God has promised it. God will bring it to pass. Express promise of long life and prosperity. Some people say that's capitalism and it stinks. No, my friend, that's Calvinism, which is the root of capitalism. And it is a sweet odor in the nose of Almighty God. The reason is that this is an express promise of long life and prosperity as far as it shall serve for God's glory and their own good to all such as keep this commandment. Probably we have time for a couple of questions while the coffee is uh, being prepared for us before we take a break. Yes, madam. What hope have we got that man will turn from these idols back to the true God who made us and that instead of man trying to thrust God's law to one side and to put the law of man of socialism, of communism, of democracy, of humanism yes, even of non-Christian capitalism for that matter and that we will resurrect over the ruins of the law of man which is self-destructive anyway, the law of God you see, because this is what the Pharisees had been doing in the church they had thrust, Jesus says, they had thrust the law of God requiring financial support of one's aged, indigent parents to one side and in place of that these wretched, depraved, twisted ecclesiastical leaders had invented a tradition of men, Jesus calls it, that is not the law of God. Namely, give the church the money that you would otherwise be giving your aged parents and we'll make it all right with God. We've got to get rid of these traditions of men and we've got to bring the whole of society, the way in which the church does things, the way in which the state does things, the way in which husbands do things, the way in which wives do things, under the law of God. And then we will have social harmony. What hope do we have? Well, it's a wonderful comfort to me to know that my Savior is far more interested in the salvation of his elect and the sanctification of his universe than you and I can ever be. We have all the hope in the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his son for the restitution of this universe. And it is as certain 
as that the sun will rise tomorrow morning, that everything for which Jesus shed his precious blood will in his good time, in the realm of individuals, of families, of society, of economics and art and science and literature and everything else, surely come to pass. Pardon? Well, the way in which we are to handle them is first to see that each one of us personally has indeed submitted and continues to submit to the real God who made the universe which man in a variety of different ways consciously or less consciously has been twisting. In other words, the way is not to go out on the street and to wave your arms around and to carry placards at any rate not until and after that possibly not in that way either you yourself have personally uh, me myself too brought ourselves in submission to almighty God which must start in the surrender of one's life to the lordship of Jesus Christ at the foot of the cross realizing who he is the lord of the universe and then as he said if you really do love me then keep my commandments and then we ask the Holy Spirit who is given to us to, to inscribe these wonderful laws into our heart and to make them living realities in our life and then as this begins to take place and as we meet like-minded fellow Christians to whom this is also happening we get bonded together and then the snowball begins to move down the mountain and then in God's good time it becomes an avalanche and it succeeds and God gives revival so it starts in our individual heart after that it affects every aspect of our outreach and everything that we do not just our church life uh, we find and discover like-minded people as I have done here in New Zealand I'm so encouraged by many of you that I've met in New Zealand I really am I praise the Lord for you and maybe I'm being a little bit of an encouragement to you and then the movement starts and believe me if God is for us who can be against us. In the Lord. In the Lord. According to God's holy law. Obviously, and I've told my children this, if I were ever to tell my 11-year-old to poison her sister or her mother, I've told her, you must disobey me. But even then, she doesn't have to kill me to disobey me. She must disobey me in a polite way, commensurate with her psychological development. You know, this is why it's such a solemn thing for us to be parents. Jesus said, if any adult or a parent causes a little one to stumble, it would be better, said Jesus, that a stone were wrapped round their neck and they were dropped into the middle of the sea. Solemn thing. We need to recognize and assume our responsibility for one another, but particularly for those who are our inferiors in certain areas, such as our children. Solemn thing. Yes. Well, it would make it very much more difficult in such a case for the child that's come of age that begins earning to know how to take care of those parents um, without uh, compounding the felony. That's true. 
And I think we've all experienced that you never give an alcoholic money. It's the last thing on earth you do. Otherwise, he usually goes to the bar and uh, he's worse off. Uh, no, if, 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 if one's parents are alcoholics, but if they're indigent and needy, then precisely because one loves them, one would help them not by giving them money, but by, for example, going out and buying the groceries and releasing those groceries just a little bit at a time and perhaps getting, preparing it for them, feeding it to them in that condition. If alcoholism is of a very bad nature, so that uh, you yourself feel quite powerless to know how to heal it, well then, of course, one would uh, need professional counselors uh, for people enslaved to alcoholism. We faced this in our uh, family when my beloved grandmother had a stroke when she was 82. And it was a very difficult decision that my father resisted but I explained to him then that I really thought that we had to, uh, to, to take my grandmother to the hospital. And what was very, very painful was when she started lashing out at us. And we nearly had to tie her up to take her to the hospital. My, my dad just couldn't do it, but I managed to do it somehow, and it wasn't easy. I believe before the Lord we did the right thing. The most I don't think I'll ever forget the look that my beloved grandmother gave me when we finally left her in the hospital. So I'm not saying these things are easy. And I'm not saying that the loving thing to do never involves force. But I am saying that we have inescapable responsibilities, which unpleasant though those responsibilities may be, make us even more unhappy if we make no attempt lovingly to do the difficult things that we really and truly think at that time God requires us to do. Any other questions? Yes and no. <laughs> uh, you know what, uh, what God apparently says through Adam, to Adam and to Eve, a man shall cleave to his wife, leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. Well, when God says cleave, he means cleave, but when he says leave, he means leave. So when a person gets married, I would urge that person to get far away from their in-laws and their outlaws or the <laughs> otherwise uh, you've got problems you've got problems even if they're Christians um, there is a tendency in a father even when he becomes a grandfather to sometimes forget that he's the grandfather and to think he's the father I've had this with my own dad because and by the way although I'm nearly 47 I still consult my dad about important decisions that I make. Uh, I had a big interchange with my dad as to whether we should come to Australia last year from the United States after I got called to this chair of theology. And um, although I don't always follow the advice of my parents, if I think after evaluation it is not correct, uh, I do highly uh, attach much importance to their perspective not so much from a Christian angle because frankly I think I am their superior theological but because I know here are people who love me who sacrificed very much for the first 20 years of my life and who are very much interested in my welfare and who want to see me do what they think makes me happy whereas 
differently I'm more interested in doing what I think will make God happy whether I get happy in the process or not actually I do but nevertheless so in that way there should be interchange this Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.